21st Century Radio is sponsored by Hieronymus and Company. Now more of 21st Century Radio with your host, Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. It's all about soul. Welcome to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Laura Kortner is our executive producer, and Sean Roman runs our board. There are many ways to enhance our awareness and benefit by a quiet yet aware mind. Joining us this hour is Kane Carroll. Having studied the martial, healing, and spiritual arts of Asia since childhood, Kane is founder of the Tao Flow Yoga System, co-author of Partner Yoga, Mudras of India, and more. In his recent Singing Dragon 2015 release, a careful reader can gain access to ancient Taoist teachings. As his book highlights, The Four Dignities, The Spiritual Practice of Walking, Standing, sitting and lying down, which everyone can do, or at least one of these practices, if not all. I hope you'll stay with us for a wonderful journey into the art of contemplation and our original posture, breath, and nature. Cain will introduce you, as he does those who read his book, to the methods of these dignities, and discuss, as he does in the third part of his book, the benefits and fruition of our actions to cultivate life-enhancing skills. Thank you so much, Cain, for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, so great to be with you. Your book's wonderful. I've been looking for things that I can really use in my life rather than just information, and I was sent one of these by your publisher, oh, I guess about nine months ago, and I grabbed it as soon as it came in, and I've been using it. So for me, it's really a pleasure to follow up after having tried to put into practice some of what you teach. So let's start with what meditation is from your perspective and Taoist as well. Yeah, so of course, there are many ways we could define or apply meditation. In the book, I'm going with this notion of meditation as residing in our original nature. And I break that down into three ways, original posture, original breath, and then this notion of being genuine in in our natural disposition. And so in that way, we really open the door to meditation so that the techniques of meditation, as varied as they are, don't end up potentially eclipsing people's access to meditation as something that's already intrinsic um, to the way that they naturally are. So in a sense, there's no barriers to meditation practice, be they cultural or cosmological. Um, And that's the approach I take in the book, that meditation is directly accessible. um, And it's right behind our conditioning, usually. It's right behind uh, the conditioned state of our posture, our breathing, and quite often our our thought patterns and biases. And when we work with those through the contemplative aspect of the practice, and then when we apply the sitting practice or the standing or walking or lying down applications of meditation, then this notion of original breath, original posture, original nature starts to get revealed to us in our own way, in our own language. Um, And so in a sense, for me, meditation is quite ordinary in a way. It's not something esoteric. It's accessible to us. Well, and I think that's one of the things I like so much about the way you share these very beautiful um, efforts that have been going on for centuries. And and that, as you say, it's not about fixing anything wrong or bringing enlightenment. 
it's simply about our understanding and understanding by observing ourselves. And I think that that's one of the things I've always respected so much about Taoism and Buddhism. It's not something you have to go to an exotic teacher for. You you are the teacher if you pay attention. Yeah, I mean, I like to think that life is is our perfect teacher. And I like to think of myself as a student of the situation, and I always encourage my students to to become, first and foremost, a student of the situation. And we might be studying a particular posture, whether that comes from yoga or a movement that comes from qigong or a particular type of meditation, and it's wonderful to study all there is to study under the, under the umbrella of spiritual mind-to-body practices. But, but when it really comes down to it, if we truly think of ourselves as a practitioner, then becoming a student of the living moment is really where, where all of the secrets start to reveal themselves. And, and we come to find out that they're really not secrets. They're, they're evident in our everyday lives because, let's face it, that's where meditation has to happen, right? I mean, if, if we were to sit an hour a day, that would be a, a really wonderful practice for most householder people. But the other 23 hours of the day have to be applied meditation, and there's a lot to learn from that, and there's a lot of practice that we can bring to those other hours off the cushion, as we say. Um, and so, again, you know, the, the door is open, and life is the teacher. And if we just use our own body and our own mind and our own emotions and our own relationships, just those few things, uh, we find we have a very poignant teacher. <laughs> and just observing those things and, and having the audacity to really feel ourselves as human beings um, then, I, then what I see when people do that is their meditation practice comes alive. Um, and well, and as you point out, you know, if once you can bring an awareness, as you describe in the four dignities, to whether you're sitting at the bus station or laying down on your bed trying to go to sleep or walking somewhere, that you can turn the most um, what appear to be mundane moments into something that is so full. And I think that's what I like. I, I, you know, I tell people I'm looking for wisdom that's embodied, not wisdom that's words. And this is embodied wisdom. So let's talk about a few things. Firstly, the four dignities. We, I think it would be wrong of us not to at least talk about what do you mean by dignity? Because in different cultures, it means different things. Yeah, so I, um, it's a good point. I address that in the book because I think culturally we reserve that word still for the notion that somebody holds high position or high office um, or holds a position in a particular institution um, or wears a particular title or set of clothes that gives them the sense of, of having an air of dignity. And that's certainly not what I mean when I use the word dignity. Um, I talk about dignity in the book and in, generally in my teachings as something that's inherent to all living things. So, you know, what's so striking when you see an amazing um, photograph or, or a Discovery Channel video of an owl, for example, and the camera zooms in on that owl's eyes and that face and you feel some deep sentiment inside of yourself. You feel some, some living wisdom is in the eyes of that animal. And perhaps we're projecting our, our human ideas onto the animal, but there's something... Um, intrinsically there that's charged, or you look into the eyes of a tribal person, you know, carrying firewood on their head. I was constantly reminded of that feeling when I, in my, during my time in India. Um, just watching somebody do a simple, 
humble act that is integral to their everyday life and to do it with full awareness and to do it with full presence. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of human dignity in that. And so when we're behaving in harmony with our nature and we're not using cleverness, we're not using deception, we're not pushing our self-serving agenda, then we present ourselves in a way that has this, this human-heartedness and, and has this embodied sense of, of ancient wisdom uh, that, that comes out. And that's what I talk about as dignity. And, and so in that definition, then, dignity is not reserved for, for someone who would present themselves as dignified. As a very clever person could present themselves through their dress and their speech and their position as being a person worthy of dignity, but it could all be deception. And so, so it's really to turn the camera on ourselves mm-hmm. and to ask ourselves, am I behaving in a way that is befitting for a person who is intrinsically enlightened? Am I behaving and acting and speaking in a way that's, that's befitting for a person who has, who has basic dignity within the fabric of their bones? And then, in, in a sense, if the answer is no, I'm not. I'm not being fully accountable to my to my innate enlightenment, or to use the Buddhist term, you know, to my innate Buddhahood. Then our practice becomes then to wipe away the mirror, to find those places where we're not being genuine to ourselves, and to return back to our dignity. So I would conclude on the definition of dignity by saying it's not something that one could ever attain. In fact, the, the effort to attain the look or feel or presentation of being one who is dignified, in a sense, obscures the natural dignity, mm-hmm. because it's coming, it's coming out of cleverness, right? Right, it's an act. The, water. the simple way yeah, we say is it's just an act. And, and one of right. the things when you talk about um, our original posture and our original breath and our original natures, that these are the tools we have, actually, for standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. And when I, I loved a story you told about spending a few days with this extraordinary Taoist, and then you spent the next 15 years, you know, experimenting with everything he had taught you. But one of the, the comments was, quote, we must cultivate a virtuous, energetic relationship with everything around us. I just thought that was so beautifully said. You know, I was telling a friend the other day about one of the things. I didn't write this in the book, but it's a funny thing to share. Now, one of the ways he explained that to me, because I I, I thought I understood that conceptually, and then he started giving me examples that I never would would have thought of. And he said, let me give you an example. Do teenagers in your country spit a lot? And I said, yeah, this was in the jungle in Colombia. And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, they, they do the same thing here. Why do you think they do that? And I had no idea. I hadn't really thought of it. And he said, well, what do you feel when you see somebody do that, you know, walking in public, spitting, you know, on the street or on the sidewalk? And I said, it doesn't feel right. There's something about that that feels disrespectful. And he said, let me put it to you this way. The saliva contains the essence of your DNA, and it contains a trace of whatever hormones that are currently running through your system because those emotions that you're feeling in that moment. So part of you is contained in that. And so it's, to not have a virtuous relationship with your own body is to, is to not be aware of where you're sort of leaving the trail of your own body. And so he told me, whenever you're out in nature, you, and, and if you had to spit, your nose was stuffy or something, and you had to spit, you lift up a leaf, and you spit under the leaf, and then you put the leaf back down so no one would ever see it. And when he, when he told me that story, it just it really 
clicked for me that even when no one's watching, the relationship that we have with our with the world at large, with our environment all around us, it, that that conduct says a lot about how we're cultivating dignity. And that out in the forest, no one's watching it. No one cares whether or not you you appear dignified. But it's, he was almost saying like nature knows. And it really stuck with me all of these years mm-hmm. that that simple example. But there there's this sense that you could call it conscience. You could call it our pure awareness, that level of us that always knows, is always watching. Right, we're the watcher of ourself. Yeah, and, and it's, not judge, it's not judging us right, on that level of right. self-critique, but there's that basic, basic knowing as to whether or not we're, in a sense, living up to our, to our full dignity potential. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's yeah. true. I think that, you know, when people say, oh, no, we're not all born with that awareness, I don't think that's true. I think we are all born with that perfect awareness, and I think all souls have this perfect um, template of what it is to fulfill the purpose that each of us has, which is for each of us is to become who we each are. One of the things you say is that we all have a worldview, and it often colors our entire lives, and sometimes we're not even aware that we hold a view. Right. How how does this um, kind of get in our way, but at the same time, first we need to observe it and then not judge it? And as you point out in our last guest, we were talking about suspending judgment as being such a key part to our own development of not judging ourselves and not trying to improve anything and not trying to make something better, but to be present and to do it. That's like the practice is the thing, not the outcome. Yeah, this is probably the most challenging aspect of any type of spiritual practice, is that the the spiritual seeker or practitioner comes to the practice and starts to learn about the practice as, a, as an external object that first they take into their intellect and think about. And it doesn't occur to us until it's pointed out that we're doing that through a set of biases that we've built up through our education and through our conditioning that we now don't recognize that we have. And the analogy that I use in the book is that once, maybe the first few days you you get glasses or you put on a pair of new sunglasses, things look a little bit different. The hue or the tone of things or the texture looks a little bit different. But if you were to wear those all the time, eventually you would forget and you would think that you're seeing the world precisely as it is, uninfluenced by any kind of bias. And so... You know, glasses are one lens, but but intellectual, cosmological, conceptual um, views, they have many, many layers, and we bring them to everything we do. And so as spiritual practitioners, uh, it's very important for us to admit that and then to begin the investigation based on some really important questions. One, what is it that I really believe? What is it that I think? Where did I get that? Does that hold water? Is it in harmony with basic principles of natural law, the basic physics of the way we understand the world to work? And and if they aren't, then we have to ask ourselves whether or not we consciously now want to hold that view or hold that belief or continue holding that bias. And at least then we're being we're practicing what I call self-honesty, um, because what is built in. I mean, there, there are many, many of these views, and we only talk about a few of them in the book because there's just only so much time. But one of them you mentioned is this idea of constant self-improvement. 
And everybody, the joke I make, you know, when, when I used to run a yoga school was that everybody comes into a yoga studio seeking something. Perfectly satiated people usually don't come to a yoga class. We all come to a yoga class. Oh, that must little... explain why I don't go to yoga. <laughs> <laughs> all the non-yogis out there are like, cool. I knew there was right, a really you... good reason. Thank you for giving it to me. There you go. <laughs> You don't go to a restaurant when you're not hungry. You know, it's like, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just right. to notice that there's something within us that's looking for something, that's seeking something. And so we often miss the very the very experience of our own discomfort, for example, when we go to a, to a self-healing yoga class or a restorative yoga class. First, we need to be in touch with the fact of our own discomfort. Maybe we have an injury or a health condition or something. But if we're unconsciously negating that in search of a replacement experience, which we hope yoga or meditation will give us, then we're operating under, under the, these lenses of unacknowledged views. And mm-hmm. usually the method of yoga or meditation or qigong or whatever it is, prayer, it doesn't yield the fruit that it otherwise could because the view informs the way we go about doing something. Right? This is the classic example in Zen of, of the one mistake we could make by sitting in meditation is by sitting there seeking enlightenment because it's to deny the notion that you're already awake. Right. 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 And and it's so, a very interesting cultural phenomenon. We do have to take a break where where we act from lack, you know, even in prayer with all the different kinds of people I've interviewed. And, and the wisest will always tell you, don't ever pray from lack. Pray with gratitude. Gratitude that it's already taken place, whatever the it is. We'll be right back. Kane Carroll's our guest. Go to www.caincarroll.com. That's Kane Carroll. Magnificent book. We won't be able to instruct everybody in walking, standing, sitting, lying down, though. You can do it. Wait to see how you really do it. Well, without judgment, of course. The Four Dignities, the Spiritual Practice of Walking, Standing, Sitting, and Lying Down, a Singing Dragon 2015 release. Hello, this is Robert Sachs, author of The Ecology of Oneness and many other books on holistic health, spirituality, and conscious dying and death. You can learn more about me and my work at www.ecologyofoneness.com and www.robertsacks.net. Right now, you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I think like lots of others, I'm looking for things in my life that I can add to my daily routine in a way that is aware and helpful. And so when I picked up this book, The Four Dignities, The Spiritual Practice of Walking, Standing, Sitting, and Lying Down, I thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I need. How to bring greater awareness to the things we do every day, all of the time. First caller, 410-922-6680. That's 
WCBM 680, 1-800-WCBM 680, will be a winner of a copy of this wonderful book by our guest, Kane Carroll. And you can learn more after the program at www.kane, C-A-I-N, Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L.com. The book, again, The Four Dignities. And I encourage you all to get a copy and enrich your life. So I want to be sure we don't just talk about the talk. I want to be sure we give the audience um, some sense of what some of these things are. So you talk about original posture, and you say, Kane, that there are key points to natural alignment. So let's talk about that first, and then maybe we can do one of the explicit exercises about bringing specifically, I think, the sense of um, ourselves from our head to our lower belly, because that seems to be kind of one of the keys that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So a few of the most essential points of posture that apply to all four of the dignities, walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. So one easy way to think about this is to align from the head down. Um, Naturally, we tend to have more awareness up in the upper body. So if we bring our attention to the head first, so simply when we're walking, standing, or sitting, having the eyes horizontal and the nose vertical is a really easy way to make sure that the carriage of the head is directly over the chest, pelvis, and if we're standing, the feet. So what we're looking for essentially is an alignment with what we call the vertical axis. And it's the basic line that would run through any object that's seated on a desk or on a table or on the ground. It's basic alignment with gravity. So because the head is situated Um, at the top of the body and it's heavy and the neck is relatively thin, the vertebra and the neck are relatively thin, it's very important for us to keep our head further back than most of of us modern folks do because we usually are looking at screens or driving, which draws the head slightly forward. So to keep the eyes horizontal and keep the nose vertical is the first step. And then to draw the chin slightly back into the throat. The feeling is to press the back of the skull slightly back. So if people put their hands right at the base of their skull, right where the hairline meets the neck, and they press that area back into their hand a little bit while keeping their eyes horizontal and the nose vertical, then the head usually will slide right into its alignment over the chest. So then what we want to do is we want to increase the length, the space between the earlobes and the tops of the shoulders. So we want to let the shoulders drop naturally down into gravity without pressing down with muscle. So the feeling is imagining that we're wearing like a silk cape or something that's lightly draping down the back of our shoulders and down the back of the, uh, of the upper part of the body through the shoulder blade area so that the collarbone sits and the shoulders broaden and the chest has a sense of being relaxed and open. And so this enables us to begin to drop into our original breath. So when we drop down from the shoulders, the next most important place, and probably this is the most important place in the body to make sure we relax it, this is the solar plexus. So right underneath the ribs, right underneath the sternum, right at the very base of the sternum is the xiphoid process. And so we're talking about the place in the belly that's above the navel and below the sternum. So if people put their hand on that location and soften it 
and relax it, and then brush down from that place just below the sternum down to the navel a few times. It's as if you're encouraging this part of the body to drop down and soften at the same time. What this does is it lets the diaphragm start to move more freely and more naturally, and it lets the rib cage open. So if people experience any kind of anxiety or any kind of nervousness before, you know, a job interview or, or, you know, heading off on a date or something, this is always the area that tightens up. And during meditation, it often tightens up because a lot of our latent emotions will start to come out. So it's very important to soften this, to let ourselves really feel our body and to feel our emotional content. And then the last part is to find a neutral pelvis. So when people are seated, the way I ask them to find neutral is if they take their thumb and tuck it right underneath their tailbone, and if they're sitting on a meditation cushion, the tailbone shouldn't be touching the meditation cushion. And if they're sitting in a chair, also the tailbone will be at about a half inch or so off of the chair. So what this means is that the pelvis has to tip slightly forward, or we need to rock just ever so slightly forward on our sitting bones so that we maintain the neutral position of our pelvis. And the reason for that is we want to maintain the natural curve of our lumbar spine. If we start to lose that curve, then we start to slouch. When we start to slouch, the head goes forward, and then all the muscles of our upper back have to work overtime to hold this nine-pound or so bowling ball, which is sitting on top of a toothpick, upright when we're sitting for meditation, and then people complain that their upper back hurts. Mm -hmm. So again, what we're going for is the head aligned over the chest, the shoulders falling away from the ears, the solar plexus softening so the diaphragm can open and broaden and the natural breath can move through the body. And then this sense of finding neutrality in the pelvis results in that our attention will naturally drop deeper into our body and come somewhere seated inside of our lower belly. If any of those parts come out of alignment, usually our attention will rise up and the physical body will tense up and we'll have a hard time being present, which means we'll sort of produce thoughts that are about things that aren't happening in the immediate moment while we're practicing meditation. And although the goal isn't to stop thinking or, or there's no problem with the thinking, it's just we lose contact with the physical sense of our body. We might call our somatic wisdom when our physical body falls out of its optimal alignment. And, and, so and one those, of the, th I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, those are very general rules and, and we don't want to adhere to those rules in a kind of rigid, militant way, each person is obligated to find the nuances within those general rules where they find their natural, most poised, uh, most relaxed alignment. And, and that's a lifetime of practice. We might say that, you know, you don't ever get to perfect alignment. You're constantly engaging with your alignment as you practice meditation because gravity is a living thing and the body is a living thing. Um, and so just to sort of know when we're falling um, further out of alignment than, than our relaxation would dictate, then we get some trigger from our physical body that says, hey, you're using energy you don't need to be using, you're tensing muscles that don't need to be tensing, so slightly lean back, slightly lean forward, make very subtle, small adjustments to our posture and meditation um, so that we can maintain that relaxed alignment. Well, and I, and I like that you can do this wherever you are. I mean, I don't go sit on a cushion for an hour anywhere. 
unless I'm in my bed watching a movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> or sitting on a chair and reading. But I don't, I, I have a walking meditation. I always have. I mean, even that's not particularly traditional. But um, I find that when I walk is when I'm the most empty and don't have to think. And I don't even really have to see. I kind of disappear into this nothing being. And that's why I was so happy when I found your book and I went, yes, yes, walking. And you said that key features are space, fluidity, and pace with walking. But before we get there, and I made a note to be sure we come back to it, the Dantian or the solar plexus area, which the Taoists and and other masters speak of in martial arts, etc. Most of us don't breathe the right way anymore. You know, babies breathe and when they inhale, their belly expands and when they exhale, it contracts. Most of us are the opposite. We inhale and our belly contracts and we exhale and it expands. And so I think this is really important to talk about because everybody in the audience can practice this and see for themselves how different it is when you actually start breathing again from the belly. Right. So I want to make a really important distinction because there's a lot of information about belly breathing. And honestly, what I see every time I teach, and and you can try this at home, ask somebody who's around you to take a deep breath down into their belly. And what you'll find is that as soon as someone endeavors to do that, the, the tension that the body and mind are holding block the diaphragm from dropping and block the breath from dipping deep into the belly. It's almost as if the effort to breathe deep is what gives people anxiety. (laughs) So what I've I've found that works much better over the years is to one, we need to, to have a distinction between the solar plexus area, which is above the navel, below the sternum. So that area needs to soften so that the breath could actually drop to the area below the navel. So the dantian, or the hada in Japanese, or the vital center in English, that area is below the navel, something like three inches or four inches below the navel. It's a little bit different for everybody, but we could say, let's say, three finger widths below the navel and and back deeper into the body. And then for the breath to get down there, it has to pass through this area of the upper abdomen. And that's the area that we want to massage. We want to do anything we can to relax that area. Swallowing, what I, one thing I have people do is swallow warm water and focus on relaxing that area because the stomach is right behind the wall there at the solar plexus area. And when warm water goes down, you get the sensation of softening and it helps the mind connect to that area. So to breathe deep, we almost need to not try to breathe deep not try to drive the breath into the belly, but work more on softening the chest, softening the upper abdomen, and allowing the breath to be sucked down into the belly or be drawn down into the belly. And so this is what we call uh, belly breathing from the belly instead of breathing from the head. Mm-hmm. So head, head down breathing is usually done with the intellectual understanding of belly breathing, and I've never seen people be successful at this. In mm-hmm. fact, you can actually trigger the sympathetic nervous response, the kind of nervous response, the fight-or-flight response, by trying to breathe into the belly while tensing the solar plexus. Oh, that's interesting. 
so and you not know, helpful. People listen. Yeah, and it's not <laughs> helpful. I mean, I, I've seen people really get frustrated in a yoga breathing class, yeah, trying to take yogic breaths. So the reason for this is that the resistance to the deep belly breath is it's it's more emotional than it is physical. We could say it's it's rooted in the body, but it's stemming out of this resistance to feeling the discomfort that happens in the body when we feel our quote, and I, I use quotes because I don't really believe there's such a thing, negative emotions. Emotions that we've culturally deemed as negative that we don't really want to feel that are difficult for us. When we resist that emotional content, our breath rises higher and higher up in our chest and becomes a pattern, becomes a habit. And so one of the reasons why it can be scary sometimes for people when they sit for meditation and realize they're breathing shallow is because now there's a moment of quiet and some of those difficult emotions start arising. It's not a problem. They arise and then sort of pass through like clouds. But we need to give them space to move so that our deep original breath can come back. And this is a really important point. I'm sorry if it's lengthy, but it's so important to understand because I've seen meditation students struggle with belly breathing for decades and not understand why they can't do it. And it's almost like they can't do it because they're trying to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have found, you know, when when I find that, oh, my Lord, where is my breath? You know, <laughs> am I still breathing? That if I just lay down and lightly just rest my fingertips in that area um, and just sort of feel the warmth and then then it releases. But if I, I I think what you're saying is very true. When I try to do it with my mind, I can't do it. When I do it with the somatic intelligence of my body it remembers again. And then I'm thinking, well, if I keep practicing one day, it'll become natural again, which it, that's right. So yeah, I that's the whole, to make what, what has become unnatural to make that natural again might be an explanation of the whole process. Of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you also, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about um, standing and walking because, you know, so many of us, particularly as we get older, we have more time to walk and enjoy walking and use it as not only a form of meditation, but um, a healthful sort of um, opportunity to just be with everything that we see, particularly walking in nature. So if you're just joining us, I encourage you to get this book. There's no way we can do it justice this evening, but just a little touch. The Four Dignities, The Spiritual Practice of Walking, Standing, Sitting, and Lying Down. And once you start practicing these things, when anybody says, what are you doing? You can say, I'm walking. I'm standing. I'm sitting. I'm lying down. These are real things. Hello, this is Joseph Emmett, author of Buddha's Book of Meditation and of the upcoming Finding the Blue Sky, a book about mindfulness and happiness. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Yeah, a student of Thich Nhat Hans, and I, they, I think they've done such a beautiful job in making things so accessible, like our current guest, Kane Carroll, whose book, The Four Dignities, The Spiritual Practice of Walking, Standing, Sitting, and Lying Down, really attracted my attention months ago, and I'm so glad now he's here with us, Singing Dragon 24. 20- 
2015 release. And stay up with Kane's blog. It's beautiful. Kane, I read one of your um, posts the other day about there is no negative emotion, which you mentioned, but it's beautifully written. Triple W dot Kane, C A I N Carol, C A R R O L L dot com. And again, thank you to Singing Dragon for giving us copies to give away. So, um, one of the things that you talk about, which I am so glad to bring to the audience's attention, is that standing still is one of the best ways to build health and vigor. Yeah, this um, this is an amazing discovery that, that I owe to my exposure to Taoist teachings and Qigong practices. Um, before I had learned about standing meditation, I was mostly practicing seated meditation and lying down. Those are my two main practices. And I um, I learned about standing meditation and found it to be really, really difficult in the beginning because the alignment that I had learned from seated meditation was so different once the legs were involved. So it took me quite a while to understand all of the nuances of, of how the lower body can really help you building health and vitality. But in standing meditation, the neat thing about it is that all of the muscles of the legs and the joints of the hips and the knees and all the small joints of the feet, they're all in an active position. And this is the position that, in a sense, we have evolved to be in for more of the day than most modern people uh, spend in that standing position. That's true. We spend so so much time sitting. Yeah, so we hear this new phrase, right, that sitting is the new smoking. And, um, And there's this notion that standing is somehow really good for us. Well, the Taoists took that idea and dug really deep into it and figured out how to increase the circulation of blood while simultaneously decreasing the effect of the gravitational pull on the body any time a person is standing. So for most of my students, I say, okay, here's your practice. You're in line at the bank. You're in line at the grocery store. You're in line at the post office. Anytime you find yourself waiting, you're usually standing in a line. If it's a long way, you're seated in a chair, so you immediately apply your seated practice. But all the times you find yourself standing, build your meditation practice exactly the same way we just did earlier. Head, shoulders, chest, solar plex relaxes, pelvis is neutral, and then move down through your legs. So knees soft. The feet have to be active enough that the natural arch of the foot activates. And this is probably the biggest you know, secret to it is that the feet have to be awake and active. The easiest way to do that is to have folks spread their toes apart. You can do this even if you have shoes on, if they're not too tight, and press the balls of the feet down while simultaneously lifting and spreading the toes. And what this does is it activates the two main arches of the foot, the transverse arch and then the larger arch that runs from the heel to the ball of the foot. And by doing that, the weight of the body naturally comes much closer to its most relaxed vertical position and lets all the joints soften and optimize. And then what what happens when we do that is that the circulation of blood in the body starts to increase its flow and fluidity, basically that the heart is using less energy to circulate the blood and the lymph starts to flow better. And so in a sense, it's this very simple posture of regeneration, literally just standing in a natural position, but the key is we have to develop somatic awareness. We have to be able to train ourselves to pay attention to the subtle sensations, the subtle signals that are going on in our body, 
so we can make these micro adjustments in our posture. When we're out of alignment, usually the body is tensing up, and then standing, I learned the hard way, is very difficult. And, you know, you hear the stories of military folks passing out during long processions from standing too long with locked knees, and it's true. If we stand in the wrong way, the blood circulation decreases to certain parts of the body, and you can't pass out or your leg can go numb. But if you stand with relaxed posture and soft joints, even just five minutes of standing that way and the breath drops into the belly, you find that you get really rejuvenated. You feel sort of uplifted from within. It's like the cup, afternoon cup of coffee without any side effect. Mm-hmm. And so it's a wonderful thing. That, that accompanied with walking are two of my favorite practices. So walking is such a beautiful display of movement, and standing is something that we all do anyway. And if, if people can stand a little bit more to do work, like a lot of people are using standing desks. I use one myself when I'm working on a book. Um, so I'm practicing standing meditation while I'm standing and working at my desk. Um, I've had students, their lower back pain goes away just from standing meditation um, or migraines go away just from implementing standing meditation. So it's a wonderful practice. That's wonderful. And so as long as you you have this ability to do this rather simply, gee, I guess you're not totally new to this, Kane. Um, What about the walking meditation? Because I think many of our audience, you know, are retired. They have the time now to do things for themselves that maybe they didn't take the time to do before. Yeah, so, I mean, one of my favorite ways of applying walking meditation is I love hiking, I love being in nature, and I love practicing meditation. So I couple those two things. Usually my walking meditation is up into the hills um, near my house, walking around the neighborhood if I have less time. So finding a place that, um, that you enjoy walking, it can be, you know, five minutes or five hours, and getting into a, a rhythm where you feel that the pace is really natural for you. It's called walking with the wind is the term that they use in the Chinese Qigong tradition. It's the, it's the feeling of being free in the four main joints of the body, the two shoulder joints and the two hip joints. So when we're walking, we want to have the sense that there's a light breeze behind our back and it's pressing us a little bit forward and that we're working with this natural, elongated posture. Our eyes are horizontal, our nose is vertical, our shoulders and hips are moving freely. And then the thing that we want we really want to do is to walk without any need to get anywhere. So we have this disposition, and this is where I think, you know, what a wonderful thing when we have less you know, time we need to spend working. If somebody's retired and they can spend truly that time of leisure where there's nowhere to get to, and there's no time you need to be there, but to walk with no destination is such a wonderful body-regenerating, joint-rehabilitating, joint-lubricating, mind-clearing, heart-opening practice. It's the, walking is the, is the basic movement that informs all of the other traditional systems of yoga, qigong, and dance. It's the fundamental human biomechanic. Right? We're the only organism that can walk upright with our feet on a straight line. The other beings that can walk with two feet, they walk with their feet in separate tracks. So this has to do with the way the legs swing and the way the arms swing. So to express this is one of the most perfect expressions of basic human happiness and human dignity and human radiance. And when you see someone walking that way, it just looks gorgeous. Um, so, And it's one of the best forms of what we call non-vigorous exercise. I know for some folks, doing vigorous exercise can sometimes be hard on the joints, mm-hmm. especially things that are high impact. 
So I have a lot of people I say, hey, if, if running is hurting your knees, don't run. Work on developing a walking practice that's free-flowing where you can really move along, feel light and free. Do it for a little bit longer duration. Focus on your deep um, sense of presence in the belly. Let your breath flow free and don't get your heart rate up. Just stay in a very relaxed place. Try doing that non-vigorous form of exercise. And a lot of people report that they their joints, which might have been hurt from other types of exercise, actually heal themselves. And, and I know that I saw that you have some books about that, about, you know, how to actually use these four dignity practices of walking, standing, sitting, and lying down to do exactly that, to make more space between those. What did you say? There's 200-some, 30 movable joints? In- yeah, we have over 230 movable joints in the body. And, and one of the things I always approach with people who are working with self-healing is work with all of the joints in your body. I have a DVD called Pain-Free Joints that has simple programs of how to do that. One's 15 minutes, one's 30 minutes. And um, it goes through all of the joints in the body. One, to develop awareness and feeling, being able to know what, what it feels like when the joints are inflamed or when the joint is impinged, and to learn how to gently free the joints. Um, so that type of movement practice coupled with meditation is such a great combination for working with the joints. And the thing about when we work with the joints, we actually work with the entire body because there are joints all through the body. So it's a way to be thorough, in other words, uh, with with a mind-body practices by mm-hmm. working, starting at the head and finishing at the feet, the tips of the toes. You've gone through your entire body. Well, you, you do a beautiful job of taking something that is richly spiritual and um, extraordinarily practical and have made it accessible. I mean, again, you know, I always feel like when I try to present a book like this with the author such as yourself, Kane, who is just one of these wonderful teachers, there's just no way we can. All we can really sort of do is just um, present that it exists. But you talk about, all right, so if we bring our somatic awareness, we become more sensitive to really feeling what our body needs. And if it's just a slight micro movement of the right shoulder, we make it so that it feels more settled and our arm works better. Um, that we can do this wherever we are, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. And I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about appreciate about your teaching style, which is it's a big deal when we bring our attention to it, but it doesn't have to be a big cut out time in your life where now I'm going to go do my meditation and my walking and where it becomes this thing where we have to get something from it rather than bring something to it. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite ways of applying it is, is in commuting, right? So if people drive a car, practicing you know, their meditation posture while driving a car, if people are, are living in a city where they commute on public transportation, all the better, then you don't even have to be aware of where that thing is going. So you can maybe at least some of the time, put down the the tablet or the phone and check out of Facebook or Twitter for 10 or 15 minutes and just bring the attention back to the body and back to the immediate situation. And if if a person commutes to work every day or drives to work every day, that then becomes a regular practice of meditation and becomes a sort of an asset, you know, instead of of a liability. So another one is what I call stoplight yoga. So every time if you're driving a car, every time the car gets to the stoplight, Relax your solar plexus, let the breath drop into the belly and reset your center of being, and then the green light comes, and then now back to focusing on driving. But if we were to, if we were to do that at every stoplight, all of a sudden we have an integrated meditation practice 
that amounts for maybe more than 20 minutes a day, and maybe we couldn't find 20 minutes a day to sit on our cushion, but all of a sudden we're actually practicing Thank you so much. You've given me the answer to my meditation challenge. Kane Carroll, www.caincarroll.com. Stay connected with stimulating talk and breaking news on Talk Radio 680 WCBM Baltimore and WCBM.com. News Radio.